Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, I wanted to uh, purposely start with something totally different than what uh, what we've been doing uh, today, or what I'm planning on doing today. And and what I wanted to to bring up, and I've been thinking about this for a few weeks, is I wanted to to give you um, some information about the Bible and what it says about Israel and the United States of America and their national policies. Because um, for two reasons that I'm doing this. One is we're looking at all the different kings of Israel and some of them are not good. In fact, there's a lot of them not good. And I don't want it to look like we're just bashing this poor country. Uh, The second reason why I wanted to bring this up is because it really does affect our national policies, but I'm seeing more and more in the United States and worldwide some anti-Semitism that's going on out there. So I wanted you to see what is very important to us as a country. Um, And here's a verse from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is the initial call of Abraham to get up and to leave his land and go where God is going to lead him to. Eventually the promised land comes centuries later. But here's what God said to Abraham about his people. I will make you into a great nation. And he has. And I will bless you. And he has. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And that's true. Then he says, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever cursed you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, from the very beginning of the United States of America, this has been a a driving principle for our politicians, our leaders, because they knew that God said, if you support, pray for, bless Israel, God is going to treat you very well in the same way. It is one of the reasons why I think our country is as well off, as prosperous as what it has been. Um, But there's been in recent decades a movement, some people call it revisionism, or revisionist, of people who are trying to rewrite history and especially to remove God from any aspect of that if they can do so. That's not a good idea. And yet that's what's going on in our land. So I don't want anybody to misunderstand that you know God had led to this country, to the beginning of this country. Uh, we are not God's chosen people. We are not. Israel's God's chosen people. But we can be blessed as we support God and his work and what he's doing. God has not set aside Israel. Uh, he continues to, um, to be faithful to what he's promised to them. They are still part of his covenant. By the way, when he made his covenant with Israel, um, the various ones, the Abrahamic one, the Davidic one, 
uh, those different covenants, they were almost every to the to the T were unconditional covenants. God said that I'm going to do this. He didn't say, well, as long as you're okay, I'm going to do this. In fact, um, the one vision that he gave to uh, Abraham about passing through the parts of the um, dismembered cow that he did when he um, set them up, and then he walked through but did not require any representative of Israel to walk through it, thus saying, this whole thing is based on me, on who I am and on my character. So God blessed Israel. He made promises to them. He's going to continue to keep them. And another thing that you and I have as a responsibility is found in the Psalms that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And may those who love you be secure. That's the responsibility you and I have, is to continue to pray for Israel and for the peace of Jerusalem. And I hope you do that. So as we investigate some of the original kings of Israel, uh, whether they're good or bad, we need to remember that Israel is God's chosen people, that they're blessed by God, and that we are blessed as we love and support and pray for Israel. Although it's, it's a true assessment that Israel is not spiritually today where God would like them to be, that's true. But they are a part of God's plan. He's not reneged on his promise. He, his unconditional promises and covenants still stand intact. A nation is really going to go the direction that their leaders go. Uh, and that's true of any organization. So today we want to take a look at, we're going to look at Second Chronicles 26, and we're thinking about leadership in this. Leadership has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. And I think a lot of you understand that very well. The Bible tells us as individuals that we are all accountable to God based on the amount of, the scripture says, light that we all are exposed to. The more that we know of God and his word, the more responsible we are to respond to him. And the less uh, makes it you know, more difficult for them, and they're not held as accountable as maybe you and I. You and I live in the most um, rich era of time and area of place as far as access to God and his information. I know there's a lot of people in our country that don't know who Jesus is, uh, have never heard of him, don't know anything about him. That's understandable as we get more of an influx of people coming in. I understand that. But within fingertip reach of every one of us is access to God and his information. We are without any excuse in knowing who God is and, and what he expects from us. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but Mark Twain once said something like this, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. I struggle more with what I do understand. And there's a lot of truth to that, man. The Bible has so much in it. I can't know and do everything that it says, but when I know something, there's a lot of things that God wants us to do that are not easy for us 
to follow. So today we're talking about who gets the glory. Who's going to get the glory in what's being done anywhere? And we're going to look at it particularly with King Uzziah and Israel in 2 Chronicles 26. But it's not a bad question to think about who's getting the glory. A good question for any king, for all sports stars, for rich and famous people, anybody successful, who's getting the glory? It's a good question for you and I to ask in our own lives as well. Here's another uh, suggestion that God gives to us found in Isaiah 42. God said, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. No. God alone deserves all the glory. The word glory in the Hebrew is the word kebab. No, it's not something you put on a grill. Um, and when when God's glory left, maybe you've heard the word ikhabab. That's That just means the glory of God has left. Here's um, what Charles Ryrie says about the idea of God's glory. He's equating it to awesomeness, splendor, the importance of who God is. And I think you could add all kinds of other adjectives there. And he tells us that in Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God, it was inseparable. It was linked with God's holiness in Isaiah 6.3. By the way, when Isaiah had that experience of seeing the glory of God and, uh, and his holiness, that took place, according to Isaiah chapter 6, in the same exact year that King Uzziah dies. And so we'll get to what happens there in just a little bit. If you're not giving the glory to God, then some people would call you a glory stealer. You're stealing glory. When you fail to acknowledge God and His involvement in your life, or if you start to claim credit for the things that you have done, achievements, accomplishments, any of that stuff, then you are robbing God of the glory that belongs to Him and to Him alone. Jesus told us that without God, we can do nothing. There's nothing that we can do. We all want to be appreciated. Everybody wants to be acknowledged and recognized to some degree for the good things that you do, and that's understandable. But in many cases, that's not going to happen. And in many cases, it's never going to be noticed by anybody else. And in many cases, we won't see or receive anything good for that until the day we stand before Christ. Then it will all be made known. Well, let's think about King Uzziah uh, and who he was and what this has to do at all with him and the glory of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, um, just going to summarize the first 15 verses for you because I don't want to go too long on this. But uh, this is a king who was really blessed. His father, Amaziah, was a man who walked with the Lord and did some pretty good things. His father was king of Israel for 15 years. And at the age of 16, King Uzziah gets put on the throne. His father passed away. He's 16 years old. He now has become the king of Israel. 
And King Uzziah served as king of Israel for 52 years. That's a long time. That is a very long time. That means he was about 68 when he died. Uh, there's only one king in Israel who served longer than he did, and that was a guy named Manasseh. We'll talk about him on another day. Pretty much, uh, I tried to use my best South Philly grammar when I said about uh, King Uzziah. He did good. He did good. Uh, he did a lot of good stuff, especially early on, but he was not outstanding. There were some problems, and especially uh, they developed later in his ministry. I'm just going to read to you verses 4 and 5, where it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Isaiah had done. And he sought God during the days of Zechariah. Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now, that's a true principle that can be applied to anybody. As long as we seek the Lord, God will be with us and give us success. In his commentary, J. Vernon McGee tells what I thought was an interesting and funny kind of story. He says that he went to a liberal seminary as a student. That's what he did, which is kind of interesting because he was not a liberal theologian by any stretch. Um, but he said during their, uh, his time in seminary, there was a class that was offered on the Old Testament kings uh, uh, and all about Israel. And he said the professor, every semester, would give a certain test. And on the test, the professor would list all the kings of Israel and Judah, all those kings that served in those two different splits of the kingdom. And then what the student was supposed to do was decide each name, write whether he was good or bad, whether he was a good king or a bad king. And that was what was required for this particular test. And he said, um, J. Bernie McGee said that it didn't take very long for the students to realize that if they wrote bad next to every single one of them, that they would be 95% correct. <laughs> so, so I don't know when the professor finally uh, learned his lesson, but you know there were some bad kings, and and Uzziah was a good king most of the time until the end, because very similar to King Asa that was before him and Joash, and even his father Amaziah. Uzziah started out pretty good, but then became preoccupied with his own success and his prosperity. Those first bunch of verses, verses 1 through 15, tell us some of the things he did. Uh, he built the town of Elath. Elath was a uh, seaport. It was about 150 miles south of Jerusalem and was a critical um, seaport for him and the defense of the southern part of his, his kingdom. So it was a pretty important place. He also built uh, rebuilt a town called Ashad, and there were other towns too. Some of those were around uh, where the uh, Philistines used to be, and and he built towers all around Jerusalem. Towers were significant because the person who was on the higher ground had the best defensive stature. So he built these towers all in the different parts of Jerusalem. Then he put some out in the desert, and then he also uh, started to dig cisterns out in the desert. 
And, uh, and he planted, he had a lot of livestock, he had a lot of uh, vineyards, things like that. He was really prosperous and doing very well. He had a lot of people from his country that would work for him. Uh, the one phrase in there says he loved the land, he loved the soil, uh, loved to grow things. Uh, he also really worked hard with a well-trained, well-equipped army. Um, he had 2,600 military officers, and he had an army of over 307,000 men. So he really developed that very much, and he invented machinery that would shoot arrows. I don't know what that would be, but uh, I don't know, crossbows, I don't know what he invented. And he also had some machineries that would, would be able to throw large rocks and stones at the enemy, catapult kind of things. So he was the first to do kind of things, an innovator. Uh, he was very aggressive. He did a lot of really unique things. And by doing all that, he strengthened and expanded his kingdom. So he was a most impressive leader of his nation. He did some great things. People respected him. His fame was well known throughout the land. In fact, the scripture says that he was really famous even to the borders of Egypt. And I wondered why did it specify Egypt? And the only thing I can come up with is the fact that Egypt was a rival great nation. And so his reputation traveled all the way to there. They probably didn't look at him the same as the people of Israel did, but they understood that he was a great leader and things were going big time for him. And all of his successes that came were because of what God had done for him. And you could, if you're going to give somebody some human credit on this, I think Zechariah is somebody who should deserve somebody. Because I read to you verse 5 where it said that Zechariah taught him and trained him, discipled him and mentored him into knowing how to follow God and to seek after him. But then comes verse 16. So here's what it says in verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You come to verse 16 and, and everything is flying great. Israel is a, is a world power. Their king is amazing. He's doing great things. He's expanding. He's, he's growing. The economy is great. The military is solid. He's inventing things. He's got people working. Unemployment is low. Everything's going good until you get to verse 16, and then he does what's wrong. There's a chink in his armor. He all of a sudden takes a self-centered turn in verse 16. He allows his pride to swell, and he became unfaithful to God. One of the commentaries I was reading, I don't remember which one it was, said that this is one of the greatest falls in all of the Old Testament. His collapse was uh, very noteworthy. He began to trust in his own power and his own abilities. He probably took a look around, saw the borders getting bigger, saw the, 
the treasury getting larger, saw all of the success and prosperity, and might have said to himself, who needs God? I don't need God. Look what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing quite well. Thank you. He got lost along the way. Psalmist wrote this, and I don't know if um, <clears throat> Psalm 115, verse 1, uh, I don't know if he had this at that time, whether that was something that was written at that time or whether he was able to uh, have access to that. But it says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. No matter what we do, we should still give the glory to God. And you can say, well, you know what? I played this four-year-old kid in a game of tiddlywinks the other day, and I slaughtered him. I am so good with my thumb and index finger. That's not you. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't even have a thumb and index finger if God didn't want you to have one. Anything we do, everything we do, we need to give the glory back to God. Sometimes success is the worst thing that can happen to some people. I think that's true with Uzziah, for sure. Any greatness that you and I achieve, anything that's good that we accomplish, anything of possession that we have, it all comes from God. And he can bring it down any moment he wants in an instant, in a heartbeat. Uzziah was so confident and so impressed with himself that he saw himself above the law of God. And it tells us that he entered into the temple to try to do an act of worship that was not his place to do. He took some incense. He was going to go in. He just was going to burn some incense to God and, and maybe have a, a nice little prayer while he was there. And you and I could read that and say to ourselves, well, wasn't it just an innocent thing? You know, what's wrong with that? He just wanted to worship. He just, you know, went on his own. It's wrong because he usurped the duty of the priest. It's wrong because he went against what God's revealed will was for him to do. For some reason, he was not satisfied alone with just being a king. Now he's trying to set himself up as a priest as well. And as much as I can remember in scripture, I think there's only two times that anybody held those two offices simultaneously. One was back in the Genesis with a guy named Melchizedek, who frankly, I think, was a specially created character that God put out there and then took away because we know nothing about him. But he was a picture of the other one, and that is of Jesus. Jesus is the only real king and priest that uh, is valid today functioning that way. What we need to know about that experience of him going in there and doing what he should not be doing in the temple is that God takes worship seriously. He really does. He really takes it seriously. And he knows exactly what our hearts are like 
the minute we get in our car and drive we go somewhere to worship him or the minute we sit down and open our bible uh, and are going to have prayer with him or the minute we go outside and, and are observing his creation and enjoying that god knows what our hearts like and he takes it very very serious as to whether or not we're giving him the glory god will share his glory with no one no one not you not me not anybody else it all belongs to him look at verses 17 and 18 what happens uh, so here he is he goes in he's got this incense that he's going to take in and burn and it says azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the lord followed him in and they confronted him they said it is not right for you uzziah to burn the incense to the lord that is for the priests the descendants of aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense leave the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the lord god 80 even 81 priests stood against the king you understand how dangerous that is this is a guy who has total authority over everything in the nation he could have easily said uh, excuse me guards let's kill these 81 priests let's just take them out get rid of them we'll raise up some other ones they come into him and they said get out of the sanctuary get out of here you don't belong here you're doing what is not authorized for you to do you are going against god's will and god will not honor you so Uzziah, of course said oh i'm sorry i didn't mean i didn't understand what i was doing and and so he was no he wasn't look at verse 19. uzziah who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense became angry he became angry and while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. That's when it happened. Leprosy on his forehead, visible to everyone. They all could see, they all knew what was going on. And the moment he responded with anger instead of repentance, leprosy broke out on his forehead. You can relax. Not every single time that you rebel and sin against God are you going to be struck with leprosy. It doesn't happen all that often. There's other things that are maybe more serious and more deadly, but leprosy was a very, very serious situation for someone in their culture. It was a terrible disease physically. Um, not, not always painful, because sometimes it deadens you to pain, which meant you were endangered all kinds of things without knowing it. Psychologically, it was a terrible disease. Socially, it was even worse. Um, no one was allowed to be around it. And spiritually, it just really distanced. You couldn't go back into the temple. You were not allowed to worship in the temple. So now, King Uzziah is really disqualified himself. He wasn't qualified to begin with, but man, now he can't even come in to worship anymore in the temple. Read Leviticus 13 and 14 to see the details there. And Uzziah spends the rest of his life, the rest of his life, he spends in quarantine. He's in a private room 
by himself, no family, no one with him. He's not allowed to exercise his rulership. He has lost it all. He's abandoned all of it because of his behavior. No contact with people. And it tells us that uh, he hurried out of there. When, um, verse 20, when Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. And indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. I wondered if he was eager to leave because he was remorseful, or was he just scared? God had judged him. Is God going to do something more? I don't know. I don't know what his heart was like from this moment on. Uh, I'm not real clear as to whether he was repentant. Um, I just don't know. But I do know that he can serve as a great picture for warnings for people with talents, for people in leadership, for people who have accomplishments and achievements. Chuck Swindoll gave a list, and I have it in your bulletin, I think, of warnings for leaders. These are really good. Um, the first one is, remember that the battle within can be greater than the battle without. What's inside of us is probably our greatest enemy. I, I won't go real long into this, but Charles Spurgeon once wrote about his uh, ordination experience. When he went through seminary back in the late 1800s uh, in England, the, uh, the practice then was you went through all the seminary stuff, which is very, very, uh, very rigid. And, then, and before you would leave the seminary, you had to be ordained in order to go into ministry at that time. And so the practice, he explained, was part of the last step for him was, and for his other classmates, was they all had to preach a sermon in front of the congregation of the student body. And in their case, he would be up on a platform preaching a sermon and the entire faculty was seated behind him. I don't think that was really intimidating. But anyhow, he was preaching and he describes it as, he took the text from Ephesians 6, which is the armor of God, and he says, I was so eloquent. He said, I took each of those pieces of the armor and I placed them on the soldier of God one piece at a time. He said, it was so well done that you could almost hear the armor clanking as she was putting it on. And he said, when I finished that sermon, I stepped to the side of the podium and I raised my sword in the air and I said, where is the enemy? Bring on the enemy. And he said, it was dead silence. And one of the professors leaned forward in his seat and said, the enemy is in the armor. <laughs> Boy, and isn't it true? Who's your worst enemy? You. You are. We all are. We're all our worst enemy. We're the ones whose heart can get wrong and, and everything else goes bad. Another principle is that God's kingdom is more important than yours. God employs us. We don't employ Him. We don't use God. God uses us. Also, don't view God's help 
has no longer any sanctuary. That's so critical to remember. The more you depend on things, the more you depend on circumstances, the more you depend on self, the less you depend on God, and the more dangerous you become. Also, listen carefully to those who challenge you, who criticize you, those who you think are being bad toward you. You have to listen to that to at least to a degree because often there's a little seed of truth in what they're coming at you about. And you need to take that and evaluate that and use it to better yourself and maybe to motivate yourself to do a better job. And then beware when the consequences of sin no longer bring fear. That's what happened with Uzziah. He wasn't afraid of God anymore. He wasn't afraid of what's going to happen if I violate God's rules of worship and I go in there and do what I should not do. It didn't bother him at all. He went in. He didn't think about the consequences at all. And like him, and like you and I, when we're not concerned about the consequences, we're capable of doing some real serious damage in this life. Unfortunately, I can and you can give examples of people who just went a little too far in life and sin devastated them and their families and others as well. So every week I've been having you think through at the end the three questions about what I like to see us observe. I hope you're not just thinking about those three questions as to, oh good, it's the end of the sermon, that means he's almost done. I hope you're looking at it as like, what about my life too? Because it's pretty significant. The one question is, in this example of Uzziah, were there consequences of sin? Absolutely there were. Uh, he was on a spiritual decline that brought ruin to his life. I mean, it was, the one commentator said, this is the greatest fall in the Old Testament. And it all started because of pride and, and the fact that he was taking credit for what God should have gotten credit for. Next question was, were there prophets or priests or leaders, elders, who faced difficulty in this and yet stayed strong? I'm going to say yes to the priests, those 81 guys, because they ran into danger. They didn't, they didn't wait. They, they knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. And they high-footed into there. They didn't care what the uh, collateral damage was going to be. They went in to take care of a sinful matter. And God settled the sore for them on their behalf, thankfully. The third question I asked is, was God faithful? Yes. God was faithful. God faithfully blessed those who were obedient to him and did what he wanted. And God faithfully punished the disobedience and the rebellion that was there. You cannot steal the glory from God. You dare not try to steal the glory from God. The best way to keep from stealing God's glory is to remain grateful to Him in all your successes and all your difficulty, to remain faithful and grateful to God for what He has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You 
for the glory that is yours, not ours. We thank you for the blessings that you bring into our lives. They are so many. And we know that they're all undeserved of our part. Um, we have all sinned and gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. And we understand that every good and perfect gift comes from above. You are the one who blesses us with successes. You're the one who blesses us with families. You're the one who blesses us with material gains. Every aspect of this life is a blessing from you. And we are so grateful to you for that. Lord, we thank you for it. Help protect our hearts. Help keep us from the swelling pride that is just so wrong, it's so inappropriate, and it steals the glory from you. Lord, today, thank you for the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ is. Thank you that he went to the cross. He paid for our sins. He won eternity for us. And that there's absolutely nothing we can do that will win us eternal life through Jesus. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. May we always keep you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.